The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abual Samad. And sitting across the table from me today, we have a very special first time ever in studio guest, as studio such as it is here in my basement. <laughs> in studio. Is uh, <laughs> Mr. Phil Berg. Hello, Sam, and hi, Dan, and thanks for having me on. Sure, sure. The esteemed uh, Phil Berg. <laughs> I, I think um, I have. Some car and drivers from like 1991. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. Your, with your byline in them. Yeah, that's it. Um, I mean, not not to make you feel old. That's what I say. Esteemed. It's well, they call it elitist. I talked to um, uh, Eddie at once about um, who's the editor now about um, um, uh, the difference between those days and now the internet days. And and some young guys told me, they said, what's the difference between an elite journalist from back then and a journalist today? And they told me that a journalist back then had to ask permission to write something. Now everybody just writes and just throws it out there, (laughs) (laughs) watches for click counts. And that's, uh, that's not how it was back in, in 90. I started at car and driver in 90, but I had been at auto week for about 10 years before that. So I'm really ancient here. Uh, Well, I mean, it used to be different. Uh, You used to have to pitch, right? And you you still pitch now, but also you used to get paid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) We don't get paid. Anymore. We're expected like the zero dollar car. We're expected we'll to, to make yeah, to make yeah. our revenue from some other source. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. like musicians, you know, yeah. musicians today, you know, they they may record an album and put it out there on, you know, on streaming services and get paid, you know, a couple of pennies for every million uh, streams. Uh, but it's only when they go out and play live and sell right. T-shirts and, and CDs and stuff that they actually make any real money. Yeah. Such as it is. <laughs> it's, it's a brutal business. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, after, let me think, just to continue on to bring you to present, after the, uh, after I had 10 years at Car and Driver, and then I went out on my own freelancing, mostly because I uh, had two kids. So, uh, and that was uh, something I wanted to stay home and be the stay-at-home dad, which we can do as uh, journalists. So, <laughs> and, so uh, I, w- I will say, though, like, how do you find that trying to be a journalist and write with uh, with kids around? Because I find it nigh impossible. Yeah. I have to wait till they go to bed and then I fall asleep on the laptop. No, <laughs> most of the stories I wrote were done on the couch in the den in front of the TV while, <laughs> you know, Lion King was playing or uh, Fox and the Hounds or some Disney DVD or something like that. And so, yeah, it was it was basically that way. And I can't. 
I can't tell you how I did it because I look back and I, I wrote five books and three of them were, I don't know, it's 80 or 100,000 word uh, books on garages that I did. And um, I, I did it with kids in the room. I don't know how that happened. And maybe that is explaining what, how they've turned out today. They're in their 20s and they're young adults and they're, they're uh, you know, forging ahead here through the economy. But uh, uh, it was an amazing blur of activity. <laughs> Speaking of those books, um, why don't you tell the, the, the listeners who, who may not be familiar with them a little bit about, especially the garage books. It's, it's a very interesting series that you've done. Right. I had um, done a story at Car and Driver, I think it was 98, and it was called Reader Garages because we had this 10 best issue every year. And um, it was readers sent in pictures of their garages. We solicited for that. And, and so I wrote the story on that after they came in. And I was fascinated by it. And I just thought, you know, there were there were people who had half of their houses were filled with cars. There were people who had seven, eight cars inside their homes and they were readers. And, and I thought, why well, something is sort of needs to be exposed on this. And so it was about, uh, four years later, I, I pitched the idea to motor books, uh, publisher and they, and they thought, well, okay, we, we, uh, we don't really know what it's about, but we'll let you do it. And most of the guys I talked to about garages, I said, I want to take it, Take some. I want to shoot. I make it a photo book, and um, and get some great big, you know, coffee table photos of people's garages. And most of the garage owners looked at me and said, "Well, okay, we'll take all the cars out." And I said, "No, no, 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 no." no. And I <laughs> said, "They said you could shoot the cars outside in the driveway." And I said, "No, no, no. I want them." the way they are now and they really didn't get the concept that it was really tough to to find some but a lot of guys ken gross and the peterson museum guys helped me out a ton because they knew sort of what i would what i had in mind and so they told everybody and uh opened some doors for me and it was it was really great what they did and and so i kind of after i did the first few garages it it was i, I came up with a description that going into a garage and seeing all the different cars that people collect is kind of like going into a a conference room and and having sort of like Gandhi and Einstein and a whole bunch of people from different periods all sitting in the same place and with those groups of you know non-related cars from all sorts of periods um, it actually added uh, something to they're all related but there's also different and just to collect them all in one place it, it it seemed to be a hit. <laughs> so I so did what three was, of those. <laughs> what was your favorite? Um, what's the favorite garage or, or uh, I guess let's do it oh. this way. What was your favorite garage? And then what was your favorite uh, collection or, or individual car that like was, yeah. was unexpected? Wow. I mean, it was, um, I'm just trying to think. It's kind of, again, like asking who's your favorite kid. But anyway, we all have a quiet one. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess the the favorite garages I had were the ones that guys could live in. Um, and that was, well, let me think. There was a guy out in uh, San Diego who had a, a car up on, it was a, he had a, he had a house on a hill and it had this 
like huge swimming pool with a grotto like the Playboy Mansion, and then his garage <laughs> was there, and then he had a bedroom in his garage, and then he had, uh, you know, like a pool hall built in his garage, and uh, and it was then next to that were all the cars, which was about twenty cars. And he also had a yacht that he built himself, and it was in the garage. It was really tall, and parked under the yacht was uh, was a Lotus, and so I mean a new one, um, like an Elise. So, yeah, I think it was an Elise. Yeah, and and so it gave scale to the yacht because it's a tiny car, and oh. the yacht just looked massive. And I shot it with this huge wide-angle lens, like a 12 millimeter or something, and. So it was very strange, and I think that was in my second book. But there's been so many. I had, in addition to the three books I did for about seven years, I did a monthly garage story for Auto Week. So I've been to 220 or 230 garages all around the country, and including um, Nicola Bulgari's garage in Rome in Italy, and that huh. was it fantastic he has an apartment in it and he has a room filled with 300 model cars he collected as a kid tiny little ho sized ones and he remembers being six years old and loving these models and i'm thinking this is a serious car guy you know yeah <laughs> so anyway i could ramble on and on and on about all of that but <laughs> it, it was it was a about a 10-year period, I did nothing but garages, it seemed. And um, and that's I actually, at the same time, I was working with Sam. And uh, when he was running uh, uh, Green Fuels Forecasts and those uh, newsletters. And so um, that's where we met and had some fun adventures with that. And, yeah, the, anyways, the Audi mileage yeah, marathon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was crazy. So yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. And, and actually, there, before that, uh, we had been, um, let's see, we, we were... We the storm were, chaser thing. Yeah, we were doing the Hummer. Hummer gave us a car to join a 100-vehicle flotilla of scientists that the National Science Foundation sponsored for two months, we went out chasing tornadoes, and uh, we used this Hummer as a vehicle to drop instruments in the way of tornadoes and to chauffeur around other journalists. And so the backseat had people from Sydney Morning Herald, from Science Magazine in the UK, which is like our Scientific American here. And we had a Scientific American journalist and a National Geographic journalist. And, and they rode with us for three, four days while we chased tornadoes. And, and, uh, and it was great because we got to see the science people and, and what they thought of cars, because these were all meteorology students and professors and really good experts at weather and one thing i found from that is that wind farms in texas that generate electricity change the weather you can see them on the weather radar maps you can see where the wind farms are because they slow down the wind so there's huh. no free lunch getting electricity it's uh you put up a big wind farm and it changes the weather <laughs> so, so, does it change yeah. it when we put up solar panels how much do you yeah. think we drop the temperature of the sun's surface <laughs> i don't you know what that's that's okay so, <laughs> it just, a little bit to spare there 
Yeah, yeah. I don't think that, I think that, yeah, it's probably not as great as wind, you yeah. know, that the solar panels are much smaller than turbine blades, I guess. So <laughs> I don't know, but there's something there yeah. in, a, in a, I guess, a molecular level. <laughs> well, well I, I, it's interesting. I wonder whether it changes the weather for better or for worse, or do, that remains to be seen. It's just different. Right. I mean, I don't know what a city would do. Like, obviously, the wind in Chicago and New York it, it, uh, is changed. It's not the way it used to be before they built those cities, if that is a constant. But, uh, you know, there were patterns, and patterns always change. So I'm not sure they know that yet. So... Uh, it's all theory, but it's fun to think about. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, as, as Phil was uh, speaking, um, I looked up uh, Ultimate Garages on Amazon, and uh, you can get copies of all three of those books on Amazon. Really? Yeah. In fact, Used ones. Yeah. Well, there, there's, okay. a, there's a copy of Ultimate Garages 3 available for sale for $1,401.25. You know what? This is funny. I came back across through Canada last summer, and I was out at RM Auctions at the headquarters having a tour of their shop, which is beautiful. And uh, that's for a garage story. But I was coming back across, and they they picked me out. I had a, a Kia something. Oh, oh uh, no, a Hyundai Ioniq. And uh, so it had weird plates on it. And so they, they, they picked me out to go through the uh, search function at the customs and so they they scoured the car and i went in and they they scoured my records and and that's exactly how they looked up to verify who i was they was they amazon? went on to, to the ultimate garages <laughs> on amazon and the guy said you know used ones of these are selling for 160 bucks <laughs> the well, customs agent told me that <laughs> yeah, well there's, there's a copy of the first one here uh, yeah. used, used uh, paperback copy for 988 dollars oh my goodness and don't, don't you wish you could have made that kind of money when you when it was new <laughs> i know well i can't complain i really can't complain because it did uh, it, it was a it was a really a good selling book because there wasn't anything like it and it was just before amazon sort of um, took away the margins in the book publishing uh, industry. And so um, that really helped me along. I, I say, you know, it paid for uh, pretty much all of my kids' braces and uh, all of that. <laughs> it, it was really, it was really good. And it was, and, but the best part about it was, is it was really a lot of fun because uh, concepts came up that I wasn't aware of before I started doing the series. And one of them is, um, uh, Jay Leno actually said to me, I don't want anybody to see my garage because everybody I've shown it who is a journalist comes in and says, how much is all this worth? And he says, I, I, I don't care what the money is. That's not why I'm doing it. And so he was turned off by all of that. And he started saying, you know, I'm not doing this for money. It's actually costing me a lot. And uh, somebody needs to preserve all these things. And so I guess I'm the next guy. And a lot of other collectors said the same thing. And they hadn't talked to him or anything like this. And they say, we don't consider ourselves owners at all. We know the cars will outlive us. So right. we are just the next guy in line to take care. You're so stewards of the right, cars. we are the caretakers of these things, or the, or the um, curators, the stewards, right. and Custodians. yeah, or, or uh, you know, the the nurses and some of them because they they were they were not all healthy. I mean, the cars weren't all healthy, and so <laughs> I've I've yeah. had cars like that, yeah. <laughs> so those kind of nuanced. 
glimpses into why somebody has a hundred cars or 50 cars or something like that. It's, it's an obsession. And, um, but they're driven not by collecting, uh, assets. They're driven because they, they, the history is really important to them. Most of the guys say the fun part about collecting a car is doing the research before you get it. And um, so I, I believe them. Well, there, I mean, there, there yeah. are obviously some exceptions to, to that description. <laughs> I mean, you know, people like the Sultan of Brunei who had mm. thousands of cars, most of, which, most of which had never been driven. Right. They were just gathering dust and rotting in a, in a warehouse in Brunei. Uh, yeah. But I mean, that that's a that's a rare exception. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of a lot of collectors fit into that category. Ah. Yeah. And the the ones that the ones that I find the, the most interesting are people like Jim Glickenhaus, oh. um, who, you know, he, he got very wealthy. I can't remember exactly how, but he's got an amazing collection of cars. And most of the cars that he has are one of a kind. And. Mm. You know, these one of a kind cars that don't exist anywhere else in the world. He goes out and drives them on a regular basis. Like, for example, he's got uh, a 1967 Ford GT Mark IV, you know, the car that finished second at yeah. Mons in 1967 behind uh, the, the Dan Gurney, A.J. Foyt car that's in the Ford Museum. He that is the that is currently the only running Mark IV. And. Over the years that he has owned it, he has put on more than forty thousand miles on public roads. It's the only one that's that's the only one that's ever been registered for use on public roads, and he's put wow. forty thousand miles on that thing. You know, and he's had other cars that he's had custom built, yeah. like the 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 the, uh, the Ferrari P four five that yeah. uh, you know he, he's got. A, I think about thirty thousand miles on that one. The Dino Competizione concept yeah. uh, that he drives on a regular basis, and you know now the um, what's the uh, the white one, the the other concept that he just bought a couple of years ago, I can't think of it now. Uh, the Modulo. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's he's been having that restored over the last couple of years since he bought it. And uh, when I talked to him, um, that's last year. Bertoni or uh, yeah, yeah, Bertone Bertone yeah, Bertone. yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, you know, once once that's done, he's going to drive that one too. So that's that's great. I mean, that actually after I started the the first garage book that sort of i had to limit it to um a lot of people were concerned that it was just going to be collectors that hoarded cars and and you know there's there's all sorts of people in that um industry and um uh, but I, I made a rule the cars had to run and the garage had to be a working garage. So I looked for a toolbox because just to call it a garage, I mean, if you if you just parked a bunch of cars indoors, that's a museum to me. So I, I made sure they they had facilities in there that it was a you were able to work on a car and uh, um, and that. The cars were real and not just sort of mothballed uh, display items. And uh, but it, it it's not it wasn't an easy black and white line. You know, I made some exceptions somewhere just uh, for uh, some guys that uh, I don't know. Most of the cars were in pieces and they were doing restorations and and things like that. But um, it 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 really opened it up and and uh, sort of what did I call it? It was a place. It, before I knew the data that we only drive our cars 4% of the time we own them, I, it occurred to me that uh, I, was in, in, um, I was building a Beck Spider 
in my uh, garage in, in Birmingham, Michigan, and I had the garage you couldn't see from the house. And so I had built this car, and I had it in the garage, and I couldn't, I could never see it because it's pretty impractical in the winter. You know, it's like having a motorcycle collection. You'll never see it. And um, so I had to, before I finished the car, I actually built a deck on the back of the house that extended to the garage. <laughs> so I have a place to sit and look at it when it was done. And so there was that, you know, the, the things you don't think about, uh, what you need to enjoy a car is, you know, it's got to park somewhere. And so you need a garage that's pretty or a garage that is livable, that can accommodate humans so you can, you know, stand around with the car. And so, you know, I grew up like that. I had a lot of friends and we, all we do is hang around in garages and they would make strange things and rebuild strange things. And that's how, that's, that's sort of where I was attracted. <laughs> so one of these days you got to write a story about uh, Richard Truitt though. Oh, (laughs) he's been posting pictures of his, uh, I, I asked, I asked his wife, Christine, if, uh, you know, what does your garage look like? Cause I'd never seen it. And she said, well, we just got a new one that's off the house just because we ran out of room. And, and she said, but it's not very nice inside. You don't want to see it. It's not decorated or anything. And I, but no, that's not the point. <laughs> but sometimes, yeah, sometimes this. Can you sit around there and what they used to call bench race? Uh-huh. And uh, can you just sit there on the workbench and 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 hang out and talk about the car? It's uh, uh, you know, one thing that summed it up for me. I did uh, as I was covering the M1 Concourse uh, Garage Racetrack Condo Complex that just opened up in in Pontiac I was about it was in 2017 I think uh, or was it before last year okay but it's very recently opened up and I talked to the guy who was the first buyer of a condo there and he was an ex uh, I think he was an ex GM engineer and um, he said his wife was terribly afraid that if he bought one of those she'd never see him again (laughs) and uh, but he said I can't relate to anybody who plays golf. And, you know, he said everybody at GM all plays golf. And he said, I I need to relate to people who relate to cars. And that was sort of summed it up to me as a, you know, there are, there are guys in garages all over Southeast Michigan that nobody ever sees. And you know what I mean, now here's a chance <laughs> where they're coming out of the closet and they can relate to people through cars. I think it's, it's really fun that, you know, all these, these, these secret solitary guys who are preserving all the cars. Now they have a place we can, you know, it hang is, out it together. is a solitary it's pursuit cool. for yeah, sure. It has yeah. its, it's times where, uh, it's, it's a craft, you know, and, and yeah. it's, it's a sort of a singular craft. I, I, yes. when I'm working on cars, I, I have this, it's hard to mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sort of be the team leader, right? Or like work on cars with someone else. You know, it's yeah. like, it, okay, if you're together with someone and you're you're there working on the car, like generally you're either shooting the breeze or one person's watching the other person work. <laughs> yes. Not, you know? Yes. And that's important though, because uh, I mean, it, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time with buddies who've raced and, and I will go and talk to them and watch them work on their car. But they have, you know, a they have an objective in mind for how they want something done, and it's not something right. that's you can't read their mind. And so, right. 
I've spent, I have enjoyed that a lot. I mean, there's also a man cave facet to it, and that's um, probably something that's in our DNA. And that uh, when when men are uh, dealing with the travails of life, um, they don't sit around in in a knitting circle and verbalize what's been going on. They tend to you know seek. Uh, inside quiet space and that's what a man cave is for and a garage is such an embodiment of that concept where you just you know if things aren't working you just go in the garage and start fixing something and then pretty soon you say okay that worked now I'll try real life stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get well, the ego going. It's a craft. It's, yeah. um, you know, I, I find myself, because I don't have a garage. So ah. in these lovely winter months, um, yeah. I, I mean, I've done my time out in the driveway in coveralls, insulated coveralls and stuff has to get done. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like in the, in the winter, if I need that sort of craft outlet, um, I'll wind up like baking. <laughs> Or like, you know, something I'll turn to some other kind of of skill. Right. um, Right. That that is sort of the same thing. You're following the process. You're looking for a particular outcome. So you work with your hands. You work out your 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 feelings come out through your fingers, you know. And so, yes. Yeah. Well, this is no longer wheel bearings. This is uh, <laughs> wheel psychology. Chat. No, it's great. Uh, uh, speaking, speaking of driving. Uh, yeah. um, so, you know. The, the next segment uh, that uh, was telling you, Phil, that we, we usually do is uh, what we're driving. And, and uh, what, what are you driving this week? I'm driving. This is Phil. I'm driving a Bolt, which isn't a new one. I think it's a 2017. But my specialty is going in and, and trying to find out um, what, let's see, what, what idiosyncrasies there are and how to hack it and how to uh, how to make it work like we want it to work versus how GM maybe wants us to have it work. So um, I had driven in the, um, oh, several years ago, I had driven an e-golf in a, in a terribly bitter winter week we had. And so it was 20 below. And the, the car, the range of the car was very small. It was like 35 or 40 miles. And uh, uh, just because it was really cold. And so I drove home one night going below the speed limit so I'd only have to use low beams. I didn't use the wipers, even though there was uh, a mist on the the windshield. Uh, I never turned the heat on, and I was bundled up. And uh, that actually happened to me way back in the 70s when I drove across the country in a in a blizzard in a beetle that the heater had failed. <laughs> so I was wrapped up in a. No, no, the heater bag. was fine. It was just a beetle. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. They they. They were really picky about. Yeah, I mean, you really had to have them working right just to survive. But this oh, yeah. was yeah. this was a across Nebraska, forty below or something. But in any oh. case, um, so I was my own, uh, I guess, um, optimizer of the battery, and I was not using the brakes so the brake lights wouldn't come on. I was uh, all of these things I was doing to sort of save energy to make it it reminded me of the guys in apollo 13 when they were saying they had that meter attached to what what's the procedure to get back home we only have this much electricity how how long is our oxygen gonna hold out exactly and so i wanted to see if i could find some things like that about the bolt and that's why i i'm in it and 
basically, I mean, it's really foolproof. There's really not much I can do to improve the way that it runs. And I'm and I'm trying to think. There are some weird things about getting it through a car wash, how it stays in neutral, and it really wants to not stay in neutral. And so uh, there's a, you have to you have to have your foot on the brake, then open the door. Then take your foot off the brake after you shift to neutral. And something about opening the door tells the computer, okay, don't put it back in drive, which it wants to do automatically after five seconds if it's in neutral. Hmm. So uh, other things like that, that's my, that's my interest in it. I want to see, see if I can hack it. I want to see if I can do a hyper mile have, or have something. Have you considered taking off the roof rack? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I I'm, just, I'm sure that's not doing great things for the aerodynamics. No, but I, I just brought 10 sheets. No, 13 sheets of uh, drywall back to my house on the top of the bolt. Oh. And it was it was a pretty cool sight in Home Depot lot. So um, that wasn't the <laughs> normal. The bolt isn't really a crossover. Right. <laughs> well, you know, with the, the sheetrock up there, mm-hmm. it turns, it, it's a wing. So if yeah. you get going fast enough, you actually get off the ground and you'll fly mm-hmm. for a little mm-hmm. bit until you, you lose some speed and touch back down, accelerate again. You know, so I know you uh, actually get more mileage. Uh, I'm curious, are, are you driving it in low or in drive? Oh, in low. Okay. I, I'm driving in, in the one pedal version, which uh, which is, is something that oh, when I when I drove a Tesla way back in 2014, I think it was, that was basically a one pedal car back then and i really like that and uh and so uh, the the bolt works really good at that but you know until you get used to it most of the time it sort of throws you forward when you uh, you know we're not in the habit of of uh cars breaking when we lift off on the right foot and uh but that's a minor thing i think we yeah i mean it, it just takes it takes a few yeah. minutes to get used to yeah. you know how, yeah. how you modulate the accelerator because most yeah. most cars when you you know if you just take your foot right off the the accelerator pedal you know it's not going to slow down that fast right and once you get used to you know okay instead of going all the way off you know come back maybe halfway or something and and you learn you learn pretty quickly to adjust that and uh, i'm curious yeah. have you driven the uh, the bmw i3 yes i have because the, yeah. the i3 yeah. is you know it's the only one that actually does that really strong regen by right. default you know, every, right. everybody else uh you know uh, gm and, and nissan now on the new leaf you know it's it's a mode you have to engage uh to yes. do that. although on the leaf they um once you select e-pedal mode it will actually remember that so the next time you start the car it, ah. it'll, it'll start in that same mode whereas the bolt you have to put it in low every time and, and it's it'd be, it'd be nice if they yeah. made that an option to to have that as the default mode it's also with the shift lever i mean you have to mm-hmm. actually it's not just a button saying right. regen and although there is a paddle on the left side of the bolt that you can manually go into regen and and i see a lot of value in that if we were in the mountains or something coming down a hill uh, you could just regen your way all the way down uh, to get in and out of traffic. And one thing I haven't, I haven't investigated, but I'm going to. And maybe Sam, you can help me tonight. Is I want to find out if the brake lights come on when you regen. You yeah, that's what I was uh, thinking. I usually have to wait till night and look and see if it, they reflect in a sign or something. Yeah, yeah. Once you yeah. get over about. Um um, about 0.05, 0.06 Gs, I think, of D-cell, which is what you would normally get right. from engine braking. Once you get beyond that, then the light, regardless of whether you're t- using the brake pedal or regen, it will yeah. turn on the brake lights. 
Well, one, one of my, my ulterior motive for this is that I've always done this, and I learned in the 70s during the 55-mile-an-hour uh, you know, emergency <laughs> speed limit to use the handbrake to slow yeah. down because pretty much when you're on a freeway and, and there are radar traps everywhere, um, uh, the, the, the person whose brake lights comes on gets pulled over more often than the person who's don't because you yeah, know well, it's also, evidence the bulbs I used to have a few switch in cars but oh, that was in the old days before before there were ECUs yeah. but but what the was, other thing that happens is yeah. when you use the, the regular brakes that you know the front brakes engage and the car nosedives so if you use the the right. parking brake it's it's typically on the rear wheel it squats there's, there's not as much yeah. nosedive right it it, yeah. it doesn't really call attention to itself. Um, yes. And yeah. I, I kind of like... Those tricks are still yeah. alive. <laughs> Oops. I know. I kind of like using that stealth mode because if you're in New Jersey, and New Jersey people drive a little different than the rest of us <laughs> and differently. And um, what happens is is they play traffic. They If you look like you're going to cut in front of somebody... Uh, then they'll close the gap. And that's just how traffic works. And so you don't want anybody to see brake lights unless you choose to. And you never use a signal when you're, you know. And so, I mean, this is this is not something I'm recommending. This is just an observation that it's probably going to play all kinds of havoc with programs for autonomous cars because they won't speak the language or they're learning well, the, to speak the, the language. Be the last place where we deploy <laughs> autonomous cars. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't know. They're I didn't mean to ramble on there. Yeah. Vehicles first before right. they put them there. So, but anyway, it's it. But what happened once was uh, when when the uh, GM when daytime running lights came out, we had a Saturn that we were testing at the magazine and. Every time you pull on the handbrake, it turns off the DR. The oh, that's right. Daytime. All GM cars yeah. do that. You yeah. pull the handbrake up one click, and it would shut off the DRLs. Right, right. Wait, and what? so why did they do that? What end? What ends up? Uh, I don't know. I don't exactly know why, but I wrote about it, and they were really mad at me, saying, "No, you shouldn't use the handbrake to stop." And I'm going, "Well, it's not to stop. It's to so the cop doesn't know you were going too fast." And uh, <laughs> and so and so, but in their case, though, when you pull up, it's um, uh, the dr the 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 running lights break, and I'm trying to think. We figured out a hack for that, and I'm trying to think what that was. Oh, we would drive with the car. And the handbrake was up two clicks because the tolerance of the cable was so loose that it didn't enact. And, and I tested that. Loose what tolerances they, on a Saturn? You yeah. must be joking. No. That's, that's what they were mad at me about is because I wrote about it in Car and Driver. And I said, just leave it up two clicks and the DRLs won't even come on. They'll stay off. And then, yeah, then you was, can pull it off. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, backlash to daytime running lights back yeah. um, when they first started becoming real common. Yeah. And I remember the Saturn ones in particular. Everybody complained that GM mm-hmm. uh, running lamps were, were too bright, and uh, so yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people that just hated them. I yeah, mean, yeah. It, you know, I, I kind of just um, I had I was driving rear wheel drive Volvos for most of the '90s and early 2000s. Yeah. Um, so I just left the lights on all the time anyway. Yeah. Just, you know, 
Yeah, so I, mean, I didn't. I didn't. I mind. did that too. I mean, you know, from very early, you know, growing up in Canada, from very early on, uh, you know, in my my driving life, you know, just got in the habit of turning on the lights because, you know, especially you know late late in the day, you know, especially during the fall and winter, you know, and early spring, you know, when the sun was often you know lower in the horizon than in, in more southerly areas, yeah, you know, it it made a big difference, you know, in terms of being able to see other cars, especially cars coming at you, but you know also you know cars in your mirror and so on you know uh, to get past the glare of the sun there's and there's also a real established communication protocol with headlights and that is um whenever uh, if you ever are on a freeway with a bunch of semis um when it's okay for them to pull in in front of you 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 di- you turn off the low beams and turn them on. You flash them on and off. You don't hit the high beams, and um, and when you do that, it isn't just saying it's clear for you to pull in front of me. You're also saying, yeah, I'm paying attention. I'm not on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> so there's. Um, it reminds me of I just was in a continental uh, shuttle. It's the um, the French maker of the shuttle uh the the one that was in vegas yeah 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 and um uh they have them running around at their headquarters and autonomously and uh what they do is they have these lights that look like eyes in the front of it and they blink like an eyelid blinking whenever they see another car to let the other car know they see him and so it's a um, it's it's more than just say a radio communication, or it's a backup to something. But there's this visual indicator that the autonomous car sees you when it blinks its eyes, which I found yeah, <laughs> similar well, that, that's, to that. That's something yeah. a lot of yeah. a lot of designers, uh, yeah. user experience designers, are, are looking at. Uh, you know, they're they're experimenting with how how to um, communicate. You know, how how to do nonverbal communication because we I mean, we do it all the time. You know, I mean, we you know, you come up to a four way stop, you might you know you know wave your hand you know to signal for somebody else to go first or whatever or you know if you're waiting you know if you're if you're in traffic and you know somebody's trying to pull out of a parking lot you know and um if you're stopped you know you wave to them and you give them the signal you know go ahead in front of me um so we do that as humans all the time and as we move into a world of automated vehicles you know where there may not be a driver to do that kind of signaling or also you know for pedestrians you know or or other other motorists to you know to to have an idea of what that vehicle is going to do, giving those kinds of signals is going to be important. And I think, you know, we had, we ran an interview um, uh-huh. earlier this year that I did up at, um, at management briefing seminars with Melissa Sefkin from Nissan. And I don't know if you've ever talked to, to her, but she's an anthropologist. And that, the, the area that she's studying is this whole area of, um, you know, user experience and user interaction with automated vehicles, uh, particularly on the outside and more so than on the inside of the vehicle and how, how pedestrians are going to interact with these vehicles and how how you control the vehicles to give those kinds of signals you know in terms of you know like how they accelerate you know if they're if they're stopped you know or you know how to, how to give indications to pedestrians of what that car is going to do before it does it um so that they know if it's safe to to walk out or not you know um you know with, before they walk out and, and hope that the car is going to see them stop you but- know so the, the Transportation uh, uh, Research Center in the UK did a study, and I think it was less than a year ago. It just came out maybe at the beginning of summer, and they said that um, 
they had test subjects in there that were pedestrians and motorized uh, people in normal cars. And at the end of the, the study, most of the respondents said that they were comfortable taking more risks, jumping in front of autonomous cars and jumping in front <laughs> and pulling out and in front of autonomous cars when the gap was smaller because they trusted that they would stop quicker and that they would stop at all. And so uh, it could go either way. It's not that people are afraid of autonomous cars. They're just going to say, oh, I need to get across the street. This I know will stop and just jump right in front of a car. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a serious problem yeah. that we have to deal with. I mean, it takes all the sport out of it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, so overall, you, you like the bolt? I do, um, and I think you know it's sort of like uh, once I drove it because uh, I hadn't spent any time in it. I'd driven only other cars, and you know, once I drive in it and I get really comfortable, um, and I say, you know, why didn't we have this ten years ago? I mean, I know why, but but it really is one of those. That's how you can tell that it's sorted out well and developed well is by when you say, well, this is what we should have had all along, you know, right. which is a, a way of measurement. That's all. It's a subjective measurement of mine, but I like it. And I like it because um, um, it's it's as useful as any compact, subcompact SUV. And you sit up high. I mean, they have this formula where uh, it has to look odd enough that uh, people that it stands out from a normal car because um, it's a what's the word people I've noticed tend to give it more of a right of way um, and I'll explain in uh, crosswalks and things like that when the IMEF Mitsubishi came out it was it's a very weird looking car it's a rear drive tiny little tires looks like a golf cart halfway and um, or at least out in the Midwest it does and uh uh, when I was driving it in Portland, and Portland is, you know, kind of an, a city where there's a lot of free thinkers and stuff. And so uh, we, I was with uh, Banked Halverson from Car Driver now, and, um, and we, were driving, we were driving on crosswalks and on sidewalks, and we were just blowing right into crosswalks when uh, pedestrians were in it. And so, you know, if you did that in California, they'd scream and yell at you and they'd swear at you and and be and stuff like that. But I was just sort of testing what did they think of the car? And they they would look at us with this puzzled thing. They wouldn't get angry. And we had the windows down and I'd say, oh, it's OK, it's electric. And then they would smile and say, oh, OK, go ahead. Just cut right up <laughs> well, the just, sidewalk. Just because just, it has uh, a battery yeah, is yeah, uh, it's just, to misbehave. It's like it's it's like a Fiat 500 parking it in you know a, a, under a staircase or something like yeah. that everybody you know it's people once they see, if you say it's electric they'll let you drive on grass it doesn't matter they, oh okay because you know anyway i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna have to use that. that sometime i'll roll up in my crown victoria be like, no no it's electric yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll probably say yeah go ahead it's not polluting yeah. <laughs> i don't know it's well, a long story well yeah. I, I i had an electrified car uh until yesterday as well that uh, i was somewhat less enamored with mm -hmm. um mm. and uh, uh -oh. and it, it was the the toyota prius c which um you know it, 
it's interesting, you know, when, when Toyota launched this thing, you know, about, about a decade ago, they first started talking about launching a family of Priuses because the Prius was kind of at its height at that point, you know, right before the financial meltdown, gas was four bucks a gallon. You know, everybody was, you know, trying to get rid of their SUVs and their trucks and get into little cars and hybrids. And, um, you know, at, at that point, you know, the Prius was still relatively pricey. You know, I mean, it's the price has come down a little bit since then, um, or it hasn't climbed as much as some other cars. Um, and so Toyota wanted, you know, both Toyota and Honda both, you know, came up with, with plans to create more affordable hybrids. Um, you know, Honda came up with the Insight, which uh, we'll come back to a little later. Uh, and Toyota uh, did the Prius C and they also added the Prius V to the lineup, you know, a little bit bigger, you know, but kind of wagon version of the Prius. But the Prius C was actually a completely different platform from the regular Prius and a smaller engine, uh, less, less electrical power, um, you know, smaller battery. Um, and um, it was designed to be more affordable um, and it shows in, on the inside. You know, I mean, it's, you know, when you when you get into most newer small cars now, you know, they compared to what we had 10 or 15 years ago, you know, they tend to have much nicer interiors. You know, they're, they're more amenities and, um, you know, better materials. Um, the Prius C does not, you know, it. it well, but th- that's like a Toyota thing, though. Toyota interiors are just not good. Um yeah, up up until up until fairly recently, that that has generally been true, especially on our smaller cars. I mean, the Corolla is you know still kind of a cheap feeling interior, um, and and the Prius C is, is very much so. And the thing is, you know, the Prius C now, although it was designed to be a more affordable member of the Prius family, um, the current you know for twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, it's the starting price is like twenty thousand six hundred dollars. Um, which is uh, several hundred dollars more than a loaded Honda Fit, um, and you know the the Prius C is smaller. The back seat's much more cramped um, than than the Honda, um, and the one I was driving was the the, the top trim level, the Prius C four, uh, and it was priced at like twenty six thousand four hundred dollars, which is about twenty four hundred dollars more than the Honda Civic hatchback that my wife and I bought last spring and the Civic is a much much nicer car than the Prius is you know and you know I was getting about I got about 41 miles per gallon over the week with the with the Prius C um you know but our Honda gets like 34 and you know it would take you a decade you know to to save in fuel you know the price difference between those cars and even more so if you went with the honda fit which is a much more fun car to drive than the prius c uh much roomier much more practical um and you know gets you know again you know can easily get you know mid-30s fuel economy um so you know i think the and and the thing is you know now you can buy a standard prius you know starting at about uh under twenty three thousand dollars uh so you know, I gotta wonder why Toyota even bothers to keep this one in the lineup, yeah, you know, because it just it 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 doesn't offer much. Um, you know, in ter- I mean, this this loaded one, you know, didn't have adaptive cruise control. You know, had um, had automatic emergency braking, but that you know that was about it. Um, you know, and I think. I think it, you know when when this one runs its course, you know probably in the next year or two. I I doubt that Toyota will bother to replace it because it's just not worth it at this point. Uh, and they don't sell very many of them anyway. Um, you know, but it's 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 no fun to drive. It's slow. Um, oh, see, that's I I disagree. I, that's my favorite Prius. It, it's what the it's, C? Car, it, it's like have you driven the C? Yeah, 
I mean, it has been a while, and I will I'd certainly admit that the new uh, TGNA uh, regular Prius is a lot better than it used to be. So some of the entertainment factor that you got in the Prius C, um, and I, I use the word entertainment kind of loosely. <laughs> yeah, if you like a noisy engine you know, that yeah, revs up to 4,500 and sits there as right. you're, and constantly as you're accelerating up to highway speeds and seemingly yeah, forever. It, it is. It's noisy. It's um. I, I prefer to to call it visceral. It's um one of the more visceral Toyotas, uh, and you know it's no, it the, has that direct Lexus steering. LC it's is light. Visceral. This, well, yeah, but this is just this noisy. Is a, okay, it's a cheap visceral Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's. I mean, while you're eviscerating it, uh, it's. I mean, it's. It's okay. Um, I, I do think that you're you're dead on in terms of it being like. Uh, it's not a good value. Uh, it's it's loud and tinny and feels cheap. Um, I, I think the thing that I liked about it was just the directness of the controls, which if I have to be in a Prius, I'm expecting that it's going to be soft and sort of spongy. And, and that was the biggest surprise with the, the Prius. Yeah, I mean, it, and, it, didn't, it didn't really feel spongy. That is true. But, you know, they, they did a They did a refresh on it, a styling refresh on it for 2015. You know, they gave it a, a revised front fascia, and it's got these, you know, black plastic wheel arch extensions, and and the the bottom of the front fascia has what looks like a faux um, uh, skid plate on there. You know, uh, clearly they were trying to make it look more like a quote unquote crossover. Um, <laughs> but, you know, too bad. Is, if you want a hybrid crossover, you know, forget this thing. Buy a Kia right. Niro. You know, the right, Kia Niro one. is yeah. more of a crossover. Mm-hmm. It has a lot more room inside. It barely, you know, it only costs, you, you know, you can get a, a Nero for about 1500 bucks more than this thing for a base price. And it's it's got a lot more features in it. You've got Android Auto and CarPlay. And it gets better fuel economy. I got 50 yeah. miles per gallon out of the Nero FE. You know, so there there's like zero reason to ever buy this car yeah no i i and i agree i feel like the nero is certainly almost twice the car that the prius c is and it's just you don't suffer in something like the nero uh that you you definitely are um you're making sacrifices for the art in the prius c for sure (laughs) i mean it's an old car now though it was introduced at a time where they wanted to do the the sort of uh, same sausage, different lengths thing that the Germans do so well. Um, you know, the success of the regular Prius was like, well, let's just expand the Prius line. And, and this was like, well, yeah, said, I mean, it, it, in principle, it was a great idea. It's just, yeah, I'm not sure that it was executed particularly well. Yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of, I, I'm in the middle between you guys because, uh, I mean, I like cars that aren't overly muted and overly coddled and uh, uh, yeah. where where actually you can hear things going on. There's a comfort for me in hearing engine noise because if it ever changes pitch, then I know something's wrong. And so well, I, if, I, I, I like engine noise as much yeah, as anybody. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, there, are certain, yeah. there are engine noises and then there are noises yeah. that, that come from engines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a noise yeah. that was coming from an engine. That's as, true. As opposed to an engine noise. You have an engineering background, so <laughs> Sam. So yeah. that's it, it's showing. No, but, uh, but also it's also a uh, – there is also something about – um, that I think that they sort of vacillated on taking the franchise with the Prius name because it's it's kind of just saying a Prius. It's uh, it's become its own. I guess they call it virtue signaling. You know, because you have a Prius, 
you deserve to be in the HOV lane more than everybody else. And it has nothing to do with the car. It's just, it's a political statement. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy yeah. because when you think about it, right, you're, you're, and I've used this phrase before, you're consuming your way to conservation. And so because you buy a new thing, you get to ride in the, the HOV lane? Uh, yeah. solo? Like, no. Yeah. The people with the 15-year-old cars that keep them going who have not right. uh, caused the more strip mining of raw materials and all the energy that goes mm. into building a car, uh, those are the people who should also get into the HOV lane. That would certainly put us out of work if everybody <laughs> continued to just fix their cars and not buy new ones. But it's it's I, I, the virtue signaling, like you say, is yeah. it's kind of hilarious and sad <laughs> at the same time. Well, I mean, that, that virtue signaling, you know, is is exactly what I mean. You know, the thing about the Prius was it always had a distinct look to it. The original, you know, the, mm. the, the, the the standard Prius. And, you know, so that's why, you know, for example, when Honda did the second generation Insight, you know, it had a particular shape that very much echoed the Prius. You know, and now, um, you know, the uh, Hyundai with the Ionic, you know, has done the mm. same thing it very much echoes the prius although it, it loses the weird you know but you know, the overall profile is very similar to the to the prius because they are deliberately trying to do that virtue signaling which you know if you if you actually if you look at the um the um uh, the sales for the Nero versus the Ionic uh, for the hybrids. I mean, mechanically they are exactly the same vehicle. Yeah, but the um, the the crossover uh, clearly you know way outsells the Virtue. Uh, there's there's far more people interested in a crossover body style than in signaling their Virtue uh, with those cars because it sells mm. about two and a half times as much as the as the Ionic. Uh, but hey, you know uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, Dan, what about you? What are you driving? I was also driving a Toyota that I'm sort of less than keen on. Uh, I had the the Corolla SE, oh. the six-speed manual. Um, and, I, I mean, it, I don't think it's going to fool anyone. You know, this is a car that, uh, overall, it's this is the car for people who don't like cars. They don't even want to have a car. They just have to because... They have to. They don't like to drive. It's a chore. They don't want to be hassled. And the Corolla has always been the sort of non-hassle car. So the SE with the manual transmission is this odd duck. Uh, and the version that they sent me had a, um, a $700 TRD exhaust system on it. It's just obnoxious. At least you'd stop with that. It's just so annoying. Um, and there's no power from the, the – it's got a tiny 1.8 liter engine – um, and I mean, there's tinier engines out there that do better. It's, it's a, it's, I won't, I shouldn't say tiny. It's gutless. Um, <laughs> I could never figure out the throttle response, you know, in first gear or as you're going to launch it, you know, the clutch is very vague. So you, you wind up revving up to 4,000 RPM just because it, it decided to do that. <laughs> you know, you're like, what are you doing car? Um, it, it's, it's a Corolla that's been sort of tarted up with like performance theater, you know, and the Corolla itself isn't it's it's not a bad car it's just it's dull you know it's it's not meant to be exciting it's meant to just you know be the car that you get in it works it's it's the it's the washing machine of cars in that sense and that's it's not an insult that's just an observation that's what it is uh and so you know the Corolla is decently roomy it has a big back seat it has a decently roomy trunk it's it's built well the interior materials are terrible <laughs> um, the seats are, yeah, I mean, they look nice. They feel okay. It's, 
But it'll it'll I've, run for twenty years with nothing but oil changes and tire rotations. Yeah, and, right. but it's I feel like they're not they're not aggressively stretching either to improve or to lead the pack. They're they're resting on their laurels to a degree because you you go from the Corolla to something like a Hyundai Elantra, and they're in the same class. The Elantra feels you know much nicer in terms of materials and design and and um, the technology that you can get. Uh, although the Corolla does have the, the TSSP, the Toyota Safety System Plus or whatever now, it's a standard equipment. Uh, but it's it's just, it, it feels like, yep, we built this car and we're going to make it cheap because nobody who buys them cares. And we sell a lot of them and they run forever. And so screw you, we're not going to put that much effort into it. Well, I, th- I think um, this is probably the last generation of Corolla where, where they'll they'll take that approach. Because, I mean, you know, if you look at the, the new Camry, you know, they've, they've clearly moved beyond that with the Camry. I mean, the Camry was, you know, always, you know, very much in that same kind of vein. You know, it was, it was incredibly effective, but totally dull. Um, and, yeah. and the new one, you know, is not that in any way. Um, you know, and I, I, my guess is that when we see the next generation Corolla, probably in the next year or so, um, that it will follow the Camry down that similar path. What? I hope so. I mean, it looks great on the outside. I think the styling is mm-hmm. real nice. Um, the The interior is not, you know, the layout and the design and the, the ergonomics are they're not bad. Um, it's just a, it feels like it's it's a mediocre car that is you know excellent at being mediocre, and that's that's fine because people buy them, and I guess we need those kind of cars on on the market. But it doesn't it doesn't stir the soul. So then there's this sort of like. Uh, discongruousness to it that's that's a hard word to parse (laughs) like it just doesn't fit like don't put the stupid exhaust on it or the noisy air filter and you know make it look like it's some kind of performance thing when it's not like i I like the manual transmission although the clutch was super vague so i could never figure out where it engaged and it it would do weird things with the throttle response so you could never really get off a smooth shift a lot of cars do that this one's particularly bad at it uh but I, I just got to the point where I, was, I wanted the, the LE or the, the, you know, just the regular trim without the stiffer suspension and the noisy muffler and a manual. Like, that, that'd that be okay. It's just, it's an appliance that I shift. Okay. What do you think um, about manuals? I mean, I'm... I'm uh, I love them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all do. And I'm just thinking... Uh, it surprises me. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it surprises me. They still have that, and uh, uh, I'm I'm just I I regret it because uh, basically every car that passes the two hundred thousand mile uh, uh, test is yeah, if it doesn't have a manual, it's not going to make it that far. Just because they just last forever and yeah you can even drive them when they're broken you yeah. know we've done yeah. this yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they break in the right, right way right <laughs> you all can, you have to do is remember yeah. that, you know, to, to park you know facing downhill <laughs> so you can get that rolling start you exactly know, once, once you get that momentum then you can shift without ever using the clutch right you know you can roll start them in reverse well that's, that's true fine. yeah so it's a little more challenging, you know. It's, you know, if you, if you have to go from reverse back to a forward gear, yeah, you know, it's, it's a little more challenging. But but yeah. you can't you can't do that with a twin clutch or a no. CVT or any any planetary automatic at all. And so yeah, and so it's sort of like if uh, I don't know if um, 
if you are looking at it as an appliance that all you want to do is for it to last, I mean, the mechanically sensible choice is a manual. Plus, I had, uh, when my son first started driving, he's he drives my Miata. And it, after he had been driving for a few months, he, he said to me, you know, I can't text in this car because I have to shift. I can't, it's not possible. It's too hard to try and talk to somebody via text while you're shifting. And I said, you can use speech to text <laughs> yeah, in New York. <laughs> I know. And, and I thought, well, you know, there's one benefit for a manual right there. Yeah. Plus, well, it, yeah. It's, it is, it's, it's almost like, that's why I think people like to ride motorcycles because mm. it requires all of your attention. Yes. And certainly driving a manual doesn't require that much focus, but right. Uh, it requires more right. than an automatic, and, and I, I definitely agree if you just want the car to last forever. And that's one of the things that I sort of felt about this Corolla was like, yeah, it's just going to keep going and going and going. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It doesn't have a turbo. It's got a pretty well-proven engine that, while it feels gutless, is just you – know, it doesn't care if you wring its neck or not. It's not going to break. Mm-hmm. Um, the if manual transmission, all you got to do is put clutches and throw-up bearings in them, mm-hmm. and they generally last. If you if you know how to shift, they, they might – you know, that – What's the synchro that always wears out? The two three synchro. Yeah, that's usually uh, the one. Yeah, uh, but even that, like, that's that's a lot less expensive to repair. Right. Um, if you ever need it, than something like an automatic transmission. I got rid of a car because mm-hmm. it had an automatic transmission problem that I I kind of knew what it was and knew how to fix it. It was just a lot more involved than something like a clutch but- or. You know, and, and having it rebuilt was too expensive. So it was like, well, I guess I'll have to do it um, or not. And I, I gave up. <laughs> well, you can still you can still drive a manual with the synchros not working. I mean, if it hasn't yeah. shattered into too many pieces and yeah. it's just laying right. in the box, it, it's it's very um, it's very. So what you gain out of that is the flexibility of choosing when to fix it. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, until it decides you know, to shack. And, and you know, if safety <laughs> officials really cared about eliminating driver distraction, you know, they you know they wouldn't be putting all this effort into autonomous vehicles and everything. You know, they would just say the only car you're allowed to drive is a manual transmission Miata, because there now you no longer have distraction. You know, the car is is yeah. it. You can't text. You can't you can't do any of this other stuff. All you can do is drive. If we if if Everybody in America drove nothing but manual transmission Miatas. Fatalities would go to zero, right? I, Absolutely. Okay. All right. I don't, I don't agree with your uh, your hypo- the, the outcome of your hypothesis, but I feel like we should test it. It works for me. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, of driving appliances, yeah. um, before we before we started recording, uh, Phil and I were sitting here chatting, and he, he brought up this uh, interesting concept, a uh, book uh, that was written by uh, someone uh, about the idea of the zero dollar car. Um, and so, Phil, why don't you give us give us a little uh, primer on the the idea behind the zero dollar car? Isn't isn't that your parents' car? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was actually written by uh, the um, I guess the the technology advisor on staff at Ford to Mark Fields, who... John Ellis. Yes, John Ellis. And uh, he it, he had... The, the book is fascinating glimpse into the car industry from a non-car guy. He's, um, you know, a free thinker. Yeah, I thought he's really um, insightful about how exactly um, the data, big data um, works and, and how that affects the car industry. And his his premise is that um, 
what's more valuable than the um, than, than the car is the data that it will eventually generate. Now, you know, cars have 14 cameras on them, and uh, and it was the part that really stuck out for me was this great thing um, where basically if if autonomous cars or or cars that are connected that have a lot of driver systems um, they're able to read license plates they're able to exactly pinpoint everybody else's speed on the road why why do we need cops if we have connected cars because they will just report and tattle on everybody who's speeding and those people whose cars can do that can sell that data and um, we won't need uh, radar guns and stuff like that. And I thought, what a fascinating premise that is. And so That's, you find that fascinating, yeah, I find yeah. that freaking terrifying. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but there can you can you can hack it. I mean, there are uh, <laughs> there are, there are you know um, polarized covers you can put on your license plate, and you can play with stuff like that that the radar detector guys still do these days. But um, uh, you you can hide amongst the zebras, if <laughs> you understand what I mean. If yeah. if you pick if you if you pick how to cloak your car right, then you won't succumb to that. But but the thing is, is that now, um, you know, you you look at where is the cash, uh, I guess the cash path with a car going. If you're selling the weather data from your car to the weather service if you're selling uh license plate photos to whoever wants them if you're if you're selling who what where when and why data of all the other cars on the road somebody wants to know who's going into mcdonald's when did they go you don't have to have the owner's permission you have you're all we're all voyeurs at that point and uh, you know if it's the uh, the sort of the lessons that we were given in photojournalism school on copyright if um or i mean uh, on privacy if if you take a photo of somebody on public property it's free game you own it <laughs> and so and so who owns the data of who's Not in germany yeah ah okay okay well, wait a second though as a as a private citizen yeah. if you're not a public figure even a paparazzi folder uh, photo, you're, right. you're kind of entitled to the right to privacy versus a public figure like an actor or a politician where you have a reasonable assumption that your movements are going to be tracked and they're interesting. I'm not sure that's true certain. legally. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, if you're on either way, public property, snitches get yeah. stitches. Don't take pictures of me. <laughs> I mean, if you're standing yeah. in the middle of Times Square, you know, and somebody snaps <laughs> a photo, true. I don't think you necessarily have any right to privacy there. But you know, I think what it is is if it's published. Even then, you know, if you're in a public place, I don't necessarily think that. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. We'll have we'll have to consult with uh, some legal assistance on that one. But I I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. Now, it, there are places in the world where where I think that is true. Like you know, in Germany, for example, and you know, Google uh, got into a lot of trouble in Germany uh, with Street View, you know, because people um, you know people decided that they didn't want their houses visible in Street View, or you know, if they happened to be walking down the sidewalk, you know, when the street view car went by, they did not want, you know, their image showing up in street view. And 
you know, so at least at least for you know people, you know, images of people, um, you know, Google now by default blurs any people that it's that you know show up in Street View. But yeah, I mean, in, in, what in would Germany, the Germans example, know about if you, about if, you know surreptitious uh, you know surveillance? And I don't know. It well, seems I mean, it seems like they don't have much to worry about. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, in, in Germany, you, you can you can uh, contact Google and, and have them blur your house in Street View. I mean. I can go stand on the sidewalk in front of that house and see the house. Why? Why should it necessarily be blurred? Um, you know, I mean, that, some 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 of it I think goes a little bit too far. I mean, I, I certainly understand you know the desire for privacy. You know, and you know certainly some of the concepts from this this book. You know, the the idea of the zero dollar car, where there there will be enough revenue generated from all of the. Um, from all of the services that can be built on top of the data that our cars generate that potentially you know and this is this is where it's going you know the the um the the car effectively becomes free except that you know um it's it's not i don't think it's ever actually going to get to that point where the cost of the car does become free because i i don't when when we have so much data um i i don't think that the value of the data is going to be enough to overcome the cost of the to the vehicle, because basically, you know, it's, it's supply and demand. When you have so much supply of data, I think the the value of that data is actually going to decline faster. Uh, you know, just as we've yeah. seen, just as we've seen with advertising on on the internet, for example. You know, there's there's so much data now. I mean, you, if you look at you know, if you look at Google's uh, financial results, you know, they're um, you know the the cost per click of of ads, you know that uh, from Google AdSense, you know, has declined precipitously in the last several years because um, the the you know there's there's so many there's so many ads there's so many sites and there's so much data that you know the value is actually going down and I think the same thing is probably going to happen with vehicles. I think you know there will be a significant revenue stream available, but I don't think it's I I seriously doubt it's ever going to get to the point of being able to completely uh, subsidize the cost of transportation. Well, I mean, I think it it's going to, it sounds like what they're really advocating is that Google model, right? Like here, use this thing. Yeah. Um, it's going to be really great and you're going to love it. And uh, it's not going to cost you anything. You're just going to have to, you know, give us, give us some access. It's all in these, this uh, big, you know, EULA that you're not going to read and you're just going to click okay. Cause you want to use the thing. Um, when the, and I've told my kids this and, and other folks as well, like when something like that happens, you know, we all use Gmail. Well, guess what? With Gmail, we're the product. We are for sale. Our data is for sale. It, most of us are comfortable with that and it's okay. So it's probably going to happen. And depends like, on the value Uber, you get from it. Right. Like um, Uber, the data that they are collecting is for sale. They don't make money on the rides and, and the, that's, that's going to come home to roost at some point. Yeah. But um, if you can design it so that, yes, you're, you're you know, spending a little bit on the use of the car, but what you get back is uh, an aggregate more valuable, you know, or you're, you're set up uh, to sort of spend a little here and make a little there. That's, that's one thing. The quality of the data, though, is another good point because we uh, at the, the day job, which is in, in advertising, you know, we don't look at cost per click so much as our, our sort of holy grail metric is, you know, uh, they're a little bit more granular, like cost per qualified lead. Or, you know, cost per, you know, actual conversion. Um, those are really what what makes the most sense. And so what we're trying to do is not gather this big net of data that's just full of noise. Uh, we we want to, you know, efficiently target 
where are we spending? Who are we reaching? How efficiently are we getting to those person, you know, those people and drive the cost of acquisition down? And and so, yeah, I mean, I see both sides. There's definitely the, the data is going to have some value as terrifying as that is. I mean, I, I find that incredibly chilling. Um, <laughs> well, it's going to get know. it's going to get even worse because it's sort of like, I mean, if you look at rental car companies, they don't they make money off insurance. They make no money renting a yeah. car for $20 a day. It's the car is the vehicle on which you base another business. And, and that business for insurance companies is risk. And so uh, right now they have no way to tell if you're behaving badly on a back road by yourself. Well, eventually they could convince you to, to report on yourself, but that's probably not, you know, that's not a likely business model. But if you're out in public and somebody else reports on you, I mean, they're standing to lose. I think the Wall Street Journal last year reported $140 billion if people stop crashing. They will lose that in revenue and uh, uh, for premiums, uh, raising premiums for crashes. And how, uh, there's many different ways. So they have to replace it with something. And what I have uh, at the um, at one of the oh geez the connected car seminars I went to the insurance folks were talking about well you don't have to have an accident to be high risk it's like standing on the edge of the roof of a building or standing in the center of the roof of a building if you do something and there's no damage you still get charged more for it. Yeah. And so if you can see somebody doing something that's, you know, 0.2% more risky than somebody else, then instantly their insurance premium goes up. And, and in today's insurance operation, that's free money for them whenever they can find somebody being riskier. Yeah, like you know, yeah, if, you, yeah. if you go over the speed limit and you get yeah. caught, you get a speeding ticket, yeah. you know, or um, you know, you roll through a stop sign. Right. Um, you know, those those things um, are are signs of risk that don't necessarily um, result in an accident. You know, there's right. no there's no actual loss associated with it, but there are, are signs of risk that could eventually lead to a loss. Right. You you are you're putting yourself at a you know, a higher risk for that loss at a certain point. It's, it, I mean, Progressive does it with Snapshot, right? You opt in and yeah. you do report on yourself. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. a lot of insurance companies right. are doing this now. You know, they, they'll give you this free little uh, dongle that you plug into your OBD2 connector, um, you know, that's got a cellular radio in it, and it'll transmit, um, you know, information about your driving patterns back to the insurance company. And right now, you know, you, you know, you have to, you know, contact your insurance company and they'll send you one of these to plug in and, you know, and in return, you know, they may, you know, knock five bucks off your annual insurance premiums. Um, but going forward, they won't even have to supply those dongles anymore because um, every car, every new car built is going to be equipped with cellular telematics systems. You know, I mean, when, when Ford did their, when Jim Hackett, uh, CEO of Ford did their strategic update a couple months ago, uh, you know, he said, you know, by 2019, 100% of new Ford vehicles are going to be connected. GM, you know, 100% of GM vehicles have been connected for years with OnStar, um, you know, and, you know, 
by by 2020, 2021, pretty much every new car sold in America and, and, and most of Europe as well will be will have built in cellular telematics, which will actually be able to collect a lot more data than those little dongles because it's it's tied right into the all the systems in the vehicle. And, you know, manufacturers are going to be collecting that data and they're going to be making it accessible to third parties, whether that's insurance companies or, you know, um, service service facilities or, you know, all kinds of other uh, stuff that, you know, uh, possibilities for, for new kinds of data services. Um, and there's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars in potential revenue uh, from, from those services. Now, you know, the, if you ask the manufacturers, which I have done, you know, they will tell you that all the, all the data coming off the vehicle that you own, the, the vehicle owner owns that data. The manufacturer is a steward of that data. Um, you know, they're you know, and if any, if they want to share it with any third party, you have to opt in to sh that sharing. Now, where that changes is as we go forward into autonomous vehicles. Um, the probability is that you will not, you will never own an autonomous vehicle. You will ride in autonomous vehicles. You will use mobility services that you know provide autonomous vehicles on demand. But you don't own that vehicle. Now the question is, who actually owns that data that's coming off that vehicle? If it's the vehicle owner, well, if it's the manufacturer of that vehicle, that's, you know, if it's GM operating uh, a Maven automated mobility service, um, you know, they own that data from that vehicle. They can share it with whoever they want. Um, and now, you know, all of a sudden, you know, while, you know, risk is probably no longer so much of an issue there because you're not driving, there's all kinds of other things that can be done with that data. Um, and so there's there's a lot of a lot of questions that are going to need to be answered. You know, there's certainly a lot of potentially lucrative revenue streams for manufacturers and, and various service providers, you know, companies like uh, Autonomo and Ericsson that are building these data brokerage platforms that uh, are, you know, these intermediary layers that, that will collect data from multiple manufacturers and then make it available through APIs to third-party service providers. Uh, but, it's, we're gonna have. To, we've got a lot of a lot of things to to talk about and figure out over the next few years before that becomes widespread. But but Sam, you had said that you made a comment that um, as cars are less likely to crash, your assumption is that risk will go down. But from what what I'm my opinion of the talks that I've heard from the insurance industry is that's not true because. The forensic cost of studying when a crash actually does happen, it's like an aircraft investigation of, of a crash. It's the, the price of investigating who's at fault, who wrote you know, the, 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 the six millionth line of code that led to that crash is going to be far more expensive to investigate any crash that there is. And what that does is it's hypothetical, it's theoretical. So... They can attach any value to that cost. If the lawyers are going to charge $5 million to investigate the crash of your $60,000 Tesla, um, the risk goes up. Even if you never crash it, if, the, if, if you could potentially cost a bunch of uh, legal fees of $5 million, that means 
the premium for having that kind of risk at your fingertips is going to be more expensive than the car potentially. Yeah, that's, and that's, so, that's a really good point. Yeah. And, and actually, that's something that, that Mobileye is trying to address. Mobileye mm. is, uh, they're, they're the company that makes most of the uh, the lane departure warning and lane keeping assist systems that are in, in most new vehicles. There's a couple other companies like AutoLeave and Hitachi that have systems in some cars, mm. but Mobileye is the dominant player right now. They, they won't necessarily be forever, but they are right now. And one of the things that they've come up with, uh, they're now owned by, they got purchased this year by Intel. Um, and one of the interesting ideas they came up with that they published recently was this idea of a responsibility sensitive safety model, um, which basically is a, is a mathematical formula that you know, from autonomous vehicles, you would collect all the the sensor data. So you'd have a running log of the sensor data, you know, for maybe the last five or 10 minutes. And if something happens, uh, I mean, it would be used in two ways. One way is if something happens, if a crash happens, you take that data of what the sensors were seeing beforehand. Basically, you pump it into this this mathematical formula, this complex formula, and you you can tell if the autonomous vehicle caused the crash or not. Um, you know, so, I mean, basically, you know, depending on how far other vehicles were, where, where they were relative to the autonomous vehicle, whether they were human driven or autonomous, doesn't matter where other vehicles around are, how far, what speed they're going at, what direction they're going. You can figure out if something that the autonomous car did caused the crash or if it was the other vehicle, um, which is something, you know, today that's really hard to do. I mean, today, you know, when a crash happens, you see the police officers going out there looking for skid marks on the road and taking mm. measurements, you know, figuring out how, okay, how long is the skid mark? How, you know, what speed were they going based on the length of the skid mark and the direction of the skid mark and the damage on this pole or this tree, <laughs> you know, but now you can, you can really automate all that stuff. And then the other thing that they, that Mobileye wants to do is actually incorporate that model into their autonomous control system so that basically the last line of defense you know before the autonomous control system sends a command to any of the actuators it'll run it through this model real quick and say if i do this will it cause the will, will it make this car cause a crash and if the answer is yes then it won't do that it'll do something else if it doesn't mm. if, if it says no it won't cause a crash then it allows the signal to go through to the actuators it's an interesting idea it won't necessarily work with every kind of autonomous system it depends on how the the software is structured um but you know so for for systems uh, like what nvidia you know does with you know really complex deep learning algorithms may not necessarily work with that uh, but it, it's it's an interesting concept, and there's a lot of people looking at it. And I think something like that um, is what we'll probably end up having in these vehicles in order to both do that forensic analysis and, and make that forensic analysis possible, uh, but also to try to make the system safer in the first place so that the, the, automated, the automated systems won't actually cause a crash. But that's kind of – there is always a risk – to driving, oh, you know what I mean, and so yeah, we'll, we'll never basically get to zero. We'll, right, right. We'll never get to yeah. a zero dollar car. I mean, it's, it's right. an atomic thing. You know, yeah, we'll we'll get you know lower and you know fewer and fewer crashes, fewer and fewer fatalities. Um, you know, it'll cost up to a point less and less to take a ride from one location to another, but I don't think any of those will ever get to zero. Look, they're just gonna have to figure out some other way to make their 
their business compulsory and fleece the general public. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's, there's no doubt they will. Yeah. But, I mean, the, you know, this is one of the areas, you know, the insurance companies are looking at, you know, with autonomous vehicles is, you know, how, you know, it's not just the car makers that have to evolve their business model, but insurance companies, service providers. I mean, ev- everybody's got to mm-hmm. shift their business models as we move forward. All right. Let's shift our business model. What's our next uh, <laughs> What's our next topic? All right. You want to talk about the Insight or the Cherokee? Um, I mean, I have more to say about the Cherokee than the Insight. Okay. Let's, so, let's do Cherokee first then. Okay. Uh, have you seen the new Cherokee? Phil? No, I haven't. Yeah, yeah. They gave it headlights. Yeah. Where uh, you think headlights Instead of slants. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it looks more conventional. Well, it looks and, more like a Jeep. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. guess. Uh, you okay. know, certainly when that, that Cherokee came out a few years ago, was it 2013 now when it came out? Or uh, 14? 13. Yeah. Oh, as a, um, as a 14. Yeah. yeah. It was... It was a thing mm-hmm. it was you know it caused some controversy and that's what you want as a designer yeah um yeah you know you it, some of the reaction was negative for sure mm-hmm. but it's really become normalized as it's gotten out there and, and surprisingly you know the enthusiasts and us auto writers we all kind of were a little bit taken aback by it um you know my initial reaction yeah. was like whoa uh to, to dislike it, it. and you start looking at it <laughs> yeah well it doesn't it doesn't there's there's some things some elements of that design that really tie back to like the full-size jeeps the old you know wagoneers and cherokees mm-hmm. um and and just you know y- you get to a certain point you can only do round lights and seven slats so much and so you know they tried something and i i i think overall it was it was successful and uh, it it moved the look more you know toward modernity than just being you know uh history and so they've they've made it look more conventional a little bit more bland less less risky less groundbreaking and so you know i think everybody's gonna like it it's gonna be fine but it it it's a little bit more bland to me. Well, the the that uh, the 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 O fourteen Cherokee when it came out, I, I was on the launch of that, and because they went to a car platform, they're stuck with a large overhang in front, which is unusual yeah. for a Jeep. And there's a lot of sort of styling tricks you can do. You know, look at an Audi; that's a huge amount of overhang in front, but they managed to make it look not so unbalanced. And so, not only did they have the seven slots and headlights to have to accommodate they also had to kind of hide <laughs> the fact that yeah. it looked a little like Cudio's steam tractor with so much <laughs> overhang in front that's just not the way jeeps look all other uh you know, com- compact uh crossovers in that market nobody you know you look at a, a they, they look at them as cars they don't look at them as off-road vehicles but yeah. but jeeps they have to look like an off-road are at least a going anywhere. There has to be mm-hmm. at least one version of one yeah. variant of every Jeep yeah. that has the Trailhawk badge. Yeah, you know, that, that, <laughs> that qualifies it as as a true off road capable vehicle. Yeah, and you know, and for for what it's worth, you know, GM has done or uh, Jeep has done an admirable oh, job oh, of taking. Don't get, don't get ahead of yourself. Yeah, man. Jeep has done an amazing <laughs> job of taking, you know, what were otherwise pedestrian platforms and. And giving them the pieces that they needed to actually make them really capable off road. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, at the yeah. 
at the um, the annual um, Chrysler What's New event at, at the Chelsea mm-hmm. Proving Grounds, one of the things they do out there is that you know they have they have this really amazing off road co- test course there, and you know they had all of the Jeeps available there in, in Trailhawk form to take you know through you know 18 inches of water and you know over rocks and logs and everything else. And, you know, from the Renegade on up to, you know, the Grand Cherokee, every one of them handles it with no problem at all. I mean, granted, you know, the Trailhawk versions amount to, you know, probably, you know, 5% of sales. Well, actually, it's probably more than that. But mm-hmm. it's, probably, it's probably closer maybe to 15%. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but I'm guessing, you know, it's only a tiny percentage of those people that ever actually take them off road. You know, but, um, you know, the, the, the reality is if you get one of those, it can go pretty much anywhere. It is. And I, I agree with Sam. It's remarkable how they can take some. I mean, it's no longer the, the hardware defining where it can go. If you if you modify a car platform enough, it will do whatever they want it to do. And I mean, and they also put in the equipment to make it do that. Um you know, the nice bean transmission and the electronics that allow it to climb up uh, a steep hill on its own. You don't, there's nine different uh, uh, ranges, I think it is, when it's climbing a hill on its own. You don't have to touch the pedals. You could be outside walking next to the car. Yeah. And it goes from point, point 0.6 miles an hour up to six miles an hour with increments, I think there's Maybe it's 10, 10 ranges or, or something like that. So you could have it going 0.6 miles an hour up a hill and just follow it along on the outside. I don't know. We haven't seen the YouTube video of anybody doing that. So maybe that's maybe there's something yeah, that when, prevents when I, when, I, when, you know, when I was out of Chelsea, you know, they said yeah. basically just, you know, put it in four yeah. wheel drive low, you know, yeah. hit, hit this button, put it in four low and just steer. Yeah, you know, and just just don't even touch the pedals. Just, right. just steer, and it'll take care of the rest. I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, so you know, all all of these are you know they they qualify you know as true Jeeps based on off road capability. You know, like I said you know most most owners will never do that, but they can right. if they want to. Right, and I, you know what they they made a stand, um, and they definitely stood out on the road. And you know they they look like. A Cherokee. It don't look like anything. You know, you know what's funny front. now is they're they're abandoning that look, uh, just as Hyundai is bringing out the Kona, which <laughs> yeah. adopted yeah. that same kind of you know the slit lights. You know, yeah. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see how that one does in the marketplace. So I do wonder though where the new Compass sort of leaves the uh, the Cherokee because it's it's so they're all like right on top of each other now the compass the mm-hmm. cherokee and the grand cherokee they're all they're just so tightly sort of slotted um you, you could almost lose one you could and 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 be okay uh, unless you're chrysler and you want to sell everything yeah, well, <laughs> i think as long as as long as people keep buying them they'll they'll keep you know <laughs> yeah. filling in more niches I mean, you know i mean look look at every manufacturer it's not just fca it's it's everybody i mean you know look, look at bmw you know they you know they, they they started off with the x5 and then they added the x3 and then they put in the they took the x5 and you know cut off the, the rear roof line and made it an X6 mm-hmm. and then they added yeah. the X1 and the X2 in between and the X4 you know, and now the X7 so I mean they're they're filling in every tiny little niche they can 
as long as there's enough numbers for them to use. I mean, that X1 and X3, <laughs> it always confused me because they are on the same platform. And I keep thinking, shouldn't one be shorter? Or, well, I mean, shouldn't I one be a different... On the mini platform, the front that's wheel drive the, platform. That's the transverse? Yeah. Yes. Okay, okay. The I X3 see. and the X5 are on the same platform. Right, right. There, I'm mixed up. Okay. Mm. I mean, it'll be great when they start using... Um, some of the, the algebraic symbols. And it's not like uh, BMW doesn't have <laughs> X alpha, X that, omega. You know? <laughs> X yeah, or, or, you know, this is the imaginary unit. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> X, XE? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did do ETAs, right? The 528E yes. back in the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They did do that. I forgot about that. The, the economy car. Yeah. 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 Ah. Wow, well, I think we've, we've exhausted ourselves on the Cherokee. Yeah. It's, uh, what else is there well, to say? since we don't actually know anything about the new Cherokee, except that they, they you know, they changed, changed the front fascia and the taillights. Mm. You know, there, there will be more information coming at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, they, they promised some updated powertrains uh, and, and other stuff, but we'll, we'll hear about that in a few weeks. All right. So, uh, so. What's next? We we alluded earlier uh, to the the Honda Insight, you know, mm. in talking about the uh, the Prius C, you know, and the the Insight badge is back again for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the the last Insight, you know, as I said before, you know, Honda created it as a, a lower cost alternative to the um, to the Prius. Uh, you know, it was based on the Fit platform and it used their um, IMA uh, mild hybrid uh, system, and it did. You know, it got decent fuel economy. You know, it would get forty miles per gallon. Yeah, but, it was not good. But you know, be, beyond <laughs> that, you know, it was not particularly good to drive. The ride quality was terrible. You know, and compared compared to a Fit, you know, it got maybe you know five miles per gallon better than a Fit. But the Fit was already fuel efficient, and um, you know, you lost a lot of what made the flip, the fit great, you know, in terms of its, its handling capabilities and its roominess, the packaging of the fit. I mean, the thing, the amazing thing about the fit is it's fun to drive and it has this incredible package with so much room inside a really small car. And, you know, the, the insight, you know, chopped out chopped off the roof you know so you had a lower roof line mm-hmm. you lost a lot of space inside shorter wheelbase so you lost a lot of rear leg room and um got slightly better fuel economy and it just it wasn't worth it now this time they're taking a different approach to the the new the the new 29 insight 2019 insight going more upscale with it, you know, and they they released some images of it, um, uh, yes, or two days ago, and I actually saw it in person last night, um, and it 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 looks really good, you know, it's it, you know it it looks like um, the the current generation Civic kind of kind of a cross between the elements of the the Civic sedan and the new Accord. you know, so it's kind of you know it's, it's Civic sized, but it's it's a more toned down. Appearance, you know, so it looks a little more sophisticated, a little, little less angular than the Civic, um, but you know, more more sophisticated. Have you seen it? You seen no. It? So it's not a Lexus look uh, of angular. Uh, no, no, no. Sharp. No, no. Okay, okay. Uh, or, I mean, I'm just saying that as a generic. Um, well, insight. Do, um, is that? Um, I remember. I actually knew two people who bought Insights. The first one that came out, the original, two right, the right, with the, with, the, with the with the spats over the rear wheels. Yeah, and um, that one was more of a science experiment. Uh, yeah, yeah, was, you know, it was all aluminum, you know, really yeah. lightweight. 
um, mm. you know, two seater um, with that same mild hybrid system. And it was really fuel efficient, but it wasn't mm. terribly practical because it was only a two seater. You know, yeah. so this time, you know, they've gone to a more sophisticated looking four door sedan body style, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, it looks really sharp. So what does this mean for the uh, the clarity, though? Uh, because it's, it sort of feels like it's it's horning in on some of that territory um, where like they're bringing out another another hybrid for whatever. Well, the, reason, the, clar- guess, the clarity maybe. isn't available as a regular hybrid. So this is this is using the, the two motor hybrid system that you know is in the Accord and and the clarity. But it's not uh, the clarity is available as uh, fuel cell, battery electric or plug in hybrid. Um, so they're they're all um, you know zero emissions capable. This one is is a non plug in hybrid. Uh, so I you know presumably it's it's sharing some componentry with it uh, in terms of the powertrain, but it's um, you know it, it's it's a much it's a much more um, uh, conventional looking car. The Clarity is a little peculiar looking. What uh, what's the range on? Uh, can you go battery only on the inside? Um, they yeah. haven't given any of those details okay. yet. I mean, okay. You know, they're, they're saying it's it's a hybrid only. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, presumably, you know, you'll be able to go a mile, mile and a half on battery if it's, you know if you get it, you know, full if you do a lot yeah. of regen and charge it up. But um, it's not a plug-in, so you know, it's it's going to be more Prius-like uh, so in that respect. So it's an ultra high mileage. Yeah, that's basically what it is. And then, um, which. Which I don't know. Are they suspecting fuel might go up in cost or something? I mean, that makes sense at four dollars a gallon. Yeah. But um, hmm. are there other well, tricks? Know, we we well, don't Honda know. They always... have, the, those those details are not available yet until the auto show. So we'll we'll find huh. out more in in a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. And Honda always goes their their own way um, with engineering. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of committed to looking at things with you know an objective approach saying what what makes this tick um sometimes they do it like everybody else sometimes they do it the honda way (laughs) so i'll be be interested to see what happens yeah well i think you know like i said you know we'll probably see a lot of uh component sharing in the powertrain between you know this and the the clarity uh plug-in and the um the accord hybrid uh you know, and you know the Accord Hybrid. You know, I think is rated about forty nine miles per gallon, or the last one was. Um, so, you know, I would I wouldn't be surprised. You know, they're they're saying you know it's a compact. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it hit fifty miles per gallon or more. Uh, you know, similar in size to, you know, the Ionic and the and the Prius. Um, so it should it should be able to hit that fifty mile per gallon mark. Something that. Um, you know, the previous insights never managed or, or the last insight never managed. The, the original one did uh, mm. sort of. But Well, I kind of I have a theory about uh, even though it doesn't make um, full uh, economic sense to be fighting over every half a mile per gallon. You know, at this point, consumers aren't so worried that their monthly budget is shot just between 45 and 50 miles per gallon. I'm not sure about that, but. Uh, uh, People I know that are now looking at their own carbon footprints and doing crazy things like switching from two-car family to a one-car family or shopping only in five miles radius where they live, do you think it's aimed at somebody that is trying to minimize and trying to shrink down 
their dependence on the car uh, and and it's only a theory i have and and i'm and i'm wondering what manufacturers may be if you guys have any theories what they may be trying to project um people's relationship with the car is uh as far as because i've been experimenting over the last year of taking buses and trains and stuff like that um and trying to see how life works without the car being the first thing I think of when I have to go somewhere, or get something. So I don't know. It's a stretch. But uh, in that case, if you're not driving a car as a commute or if you're only using it once a week, uh, you know, even less than the the 4% that we use it now, what, uh, what, what is, what car would fit in that place? Is this it? This insight? I don't know. Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I, I mean, if that's what you're trying to achieve, you know, try to minimize your your car use. You know, um, my guess is that this car is going to be pricier than a Civic, mm-hmm. you know, so probably, you know, starting somewhere around twenty five grand and maybe going up to about thirty. Um, you know, and particularly because, you know, in, in the, the announcement of it, you know, they, they talked about it being more upscale and, you know, the way hmm. it looks and everything, my guess is it, it will be a little, it'll, it'll probably slot in price-wise below the, the clarity plug-in hybrid, but, you know, above where the civic is. Um, and, but you know, I look I, at, Oh, I look, I, I think it may be more of, you know, the, the virtue thing we talked about earlier, <laughs> you know, where, you know, because, you know, they've given it a distinct look, you know, that, um, shows that it is part of the current Honda family, but it's, it's also clearly not a civic and it's not, an Accord. um, you know, so, you know, it's not, it doesn't have the weird of a Prius, but it is distinct. Um, and so maybe that's what they're going for is going for some of that market. Granted, that's a, that's a, a shrinking market here in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, Prius sales have been declining for the last several years. So I'm not sure what they're trying to achieve. Hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe I think they just if want to get their, their cafe up, you know, so that they can sell more pilot uh, or more um, pilots. Bridge lines. Lines. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think if you're looking to. Uh, minimize your your sort of blast radius. Uh, <laughs> your <laughs> your best bet really is something like a used Leaf. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. electric and it's cheap, and you're you're never going to use the capacity that's in that battery unless you go on a longer trip. And then if you need to go on a longer trip, there's other ways to yeah, you rent to something for car. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or switch with your neighbors or yeah. start vehicle sharing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's three uh, old Leaf for ten grand, and uh, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm putting that. Yeah, I'm putting. I used to. Uh, there was a time at which I had three two seat convertibles and kids and grandmas. <laughs> priorities. And uh, <laughs> would always work great because all of my neighbors had an SUV and a minivan, and you just loan them the convertible right. for a week or two weeks, and you go and you put, you know, three thousand miles on on their uh, on their their Honda minivan and. Uh, they get to put like sixty miles on your convertible, and they and, that and they think sharing economy. None of none of this, yeah. you know, paying some guy you know to drive you around town in an Uber. You know, this is your, the true yeah. of sharing. But yeah. uh, they always thought they got the better end of the deal, and you just go, "Wow!" And so uh, sure, thanks. <laughs> but I don't know. It's it's a thought. It's, where does this thing fit in? It sends me out into left field. So. <laughs> I'm right. sure they've done their homework and they, yeah. they, they know who they're going to target. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting that it's built alongside the uh, the Civic and the CRV. And I wonder if it, it means that 
Um, there and, and Honda tends to be really flexible with their plants, mm. but uh, I wonder if it means that there could be hybrid versions of those at some point rather easily. Ah, I see. Yeah, it could just uh, the, be a I, test. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't. I, I would be shocked if we don't see a hybrid CRV sooner rather than later. But you know, given you know that this car has such a similar shape to a Civic, um, it, I'm not sure we'll see a Civic, another Civic hybrid in the foreseeable future. Yeah. I think I think this this really is the the new Civic hybrid. Well, that's fine. I mean, it, there's probably something to be said for making it its own sort of standalone car, but a hybrid CRV is like that's Oh yeah, that's a no-brainer. They, they ought to do that's, that. That's that's definitely going to happen. No no yeah. no question about that. All right. All right. Let's, one, let's, one, uh, one last one I want to touch on real quick. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a report today that uh, they've confirmed the uh, the 20th uh, fatality in a uh, from a Takata airbag exploding. And uh, as I saw this today, you know, and then about an hour later, I went outside to the mailbox to get the mail. And there was a letter there from Ford um, in reference to a 2008 Fusion that I own that uh, my younger child uh, drives. And um, and said, yeah, we we sent you a a recall notice back in July of 2016 uh, for your for the Takata airbags in your in your car. Uh, And we we told you that, you know, we hope to have uh, uh, replacement parts available soon and we'd notify you when the replacement parts are available. And it's now 18 months later and said, yeah, we still don't have replacement parts. We hope to have them by spring of 2018. Uh, Please stand by. Uh, So uh, uh, this this (laughs) and, you know, this is not. This is not a problem unique to Ford. I mean, pretty much every manufacturer that's got mm-hmm. Takata airbags has had issues trying to get replacement inflators for those airbags. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and there are still tens of millions of cars on the road that have these um, faulty inflators that um, are going to need to be replaced at some point. Uh, and it's it's already taken at least 20 lives. Um and you know, uh, hopefully they get this thing sorted out quickly, and and you know, get these infl- these replacement inflators built, and get them into these vehicles before uh, before too many more lives are lost. Well, well, what do you even do in the meantime? There's not much you can do, uh, because I mean, you know, theoretically you could, you know, um, you could unplug the airbag. You know, you can you can take it out and pull the thing out. But from what I understand. Uh, those inflators, you know, the the problem is corrosion, and the inflators can actually go off even if there's no, uh, you know, even with, if there's nothing there, um, you know. So I I don't know I don't know if there is anything you can do, but, you know, short of parking the car, or or hmm. taking out the airbag entirely. Hmm. Hmm. That's a it's a, I'd be curious to know. I mean. Some of the some of those some of the airbags have worked in accidents, and so I wonder oh, yeah, what the ratio is. Right, right, yeah. and uh, so I'm so I'm curious. You, it, it's up to the owner to balance the risk again. Here we're talking that again, and uh, but the thing is, is if your car is if your Fusion is an 08, there's a huge drop off with 10 year cars. People just not getting any the the return rate on a on a recall is maybe 20 percent for 25 percent something like that uh is the last figure i heard on on when you passed a 10 year old car nobody's taking it 
for a recall. Yeah. Because number one, they don't trust dealers. There's this number of there are a number of of, of evidential uh, uh, reasons why people just stop doing it after a certain amount, and it may help reform the recall business. On, um, I mean, they they they. The last I heard, it was a couple of years ago that they were talking about, uh, you know, you could make the, the, the vehicle non-DOT legal if it hasn't had all of its recalls. And so you couldn't get plates for it or something like that. And I don't know where that's going to go, but uh, I, it's a huge number of cars that haven't had their recall notices taken. Yeah, I mean, I taken. think there was, yeah. what, about, about 80 million yeah, vehicles. Millions, that, that, millions. You know, that were subject yeah. to these recalls. Yeah. And, you know, there's still several tens of millions that have not been updated. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, granted, you know, 80 million vehicles with these problematic airbag inflators, been 20 fatalities, that's a relatively low rate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and there's, you know, probably several hundred, if, you know, maybe not, maybe several thousand injuries. Um, so the, the odds of you dying from one of these is, is pretty slim. But if you do get um, a notice from, from your, your manufacturer that right. they have parts ready to, to fix your car, please go ahead and take <laughs> it in. Get it, get it oh, yeah, as, yeah. as soon as possible. Well, don't, don't waste time. It'll you, preserve value of the car, too. Yeah, yeah. So... All right. Well, why don't we wrap it up? Uh, we've been going for quite a while here. <laughs> Phil, yeah, well, I'm getting thank you so tired much. Oh, thanks, guys, <laughs> for, for having me and letting me ramble on on some stories. And I and I really like this format. So I'd really like to come back someday. But it's been, uh, yeah, it's, it's the two hours woo, goes shooting by. Oh, so, tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, when I get a garage, um, I'll be asking for decoration advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, have, we'll, we'll bring Phil out to uh, Boston to yeah. take pictures of it. Don't. That's fine. Don't it's buy fine. the book on Amazon for a thousand dollars. I can get you one a lot cheaper. So. <laughs> <laughs> do, All right. Do you yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Well. Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, I do. If anybody, yeah, yeah. If, if anybody wants copies of the uh, of any of the Ultimate Garages books, um, just send us an email or you know send us a tweet. And uh, we will put you in touch with Phil and yeah. get you a copy at a, at a much more reasonable price. And it'll be a brand new copy, <laughs> fresh out of the box. Signed. It's got to be signed. Yeah. Come on. Yes, yes, yes. I'll be happy to. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With a personal note with it. That's how That's how I like to do it. So. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Well, hey, thanks for joining us, Phil. Thank um, you, Dan. We'll, we'll have you on again soon. All right. All right. Fantastic. We'll talk to you all next week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.